0: Madison, Christmas Day, 1977. Jerry Davies, a 31-year-old shipping clerk, walked into the police department to report a potential crime. Expecting a rather uneventful day on the holiday, the police were certainly surprised when Davies told them that he had just buried a human body. Directing the police to the scene, Davies watched as the naked, bruised, battered, and frozen body was pulled from a snowbank. The investigation that followed again drew national headlines and told a lurid tale of sex, drugs, and murder as the city's secret sleazy underbelly was exposed for the world to see. Madison's very own Red Light District. Welcome to Badger Bizarre. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer... parts such as skulls, skeletons, Thank you everybody for tuning in to this episode 34 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host Scott Whitman along with me your other host Mickey Sanders. I'm always- the world revolves around <laughs> oh, I the don't co-host. think it
1: does. I'm pretty sure.
0: Nobody knows that if it is. It does in the world yeah. of Badger Bazaar. How are you doing, house? Mickey? Happy New Year to you, buddy. Happy New Year to everybody else out there. Happy
1: New Year to you. It's, I'm always on the edge of my seat, excited on what kind of tone I'm going to get when I'm introduced to the oh, show. Oh, today
0: it's top of the world, are just bud. full of life and cheer. It's and- first show of 2024. Yeah.
1: Happy New Year, everyone.
0: First episode of 2024. 2023 is in the books. For us, we grew quite a bit. Badger Bazaar, good year for 2023. Now, full steam ahead for 2024, so we hope everybody had a good holiday season, a good new year. As we've been saying for the last couple episodes, a couple of things, a, a number of things coming out in 2024 that we have planned for you. We have a Patreon plan for you. We have a YouTube channel planned for you. We'll have more personal appearances coming up throughout the year, so again... As always, a couple of paricons possibly. Keep in tune with our social media. Look for us on Facebook. Look for us on Twitter. All of that information will be there, so you can come out and see our beautiful faces along with hearing us behind the microphone. Just follow your here. favorite podcast
1: as much as you can. Couple stalk se- us if you even want. We don't. We're not afraid. Well, okay. You us off on that a little yeah. bit. Okay, I guess.
0: A couple of things going on into uh, to to kick off the new year. Probably the biggest story in true crime right now to start off the new year. Is that of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, which my Gypsy Rose, sorry, n- Gypsy Rose, not Gypsy Road? I like Cinderella. Gypsy Rose, I just said it. So, if you follow True Crime, which obviously many of you do, you've probably heard about this. It's a pretty big story. It does have a Wisconsin angle to it and i'll talk about it now she has been released from prison there's a big documentary right now that just started on hulu hulu also had a documentary actually i think it was a um, a limited series about her called the act but she has quite an interesting story here from wtmj wisconsin connection gypsy rose blanchard out of prison after mother's murder gypsy rose blanchard the missouri woman who persuaded an online boyfriend to kill her mother after she had forced her to pretend for years that she was suffering from leukemia muscular dystrophy and other serious illnesses was released thursday from prison on parole blanchard was released earlier in the day from the chillicothe correctional center blanchard was granted parole after serving 85 percent of her original sentence Blanchard's case sparked national tabloid interest after reports emerged that her mother, Dee Dee Blanchard, who was slain in 2015, had essentially kept her daughter prisoner, forcing her to use a wheelchair and a feeding tube. It turned out that Gypsy Blanchard, now 32, was perfectly healthy, not developmentally delayed as her friends had always believed. Her mother had Munchausen syndrome by proxy. That sounds like a band name or like you're having a stroke. It's actually a psychological disorder in which parents or caregivers... Seek sympathy through the exaggerated or made-up illnesses of their children. says, quote, People were constantly telling Dee Dee what a wonderful mother she was, and Dee Dee was getting all of this attention. Unquote. Through the ruse, the mother and daughter met country star Miranda Lambert and received charitable donations, a trip to Disney World, and even a home near Springfield from Habitat for Humanity. Shoot, I think I'm sick. Can you start taking care of
1: me? Let's start meeting some celebrities.
0: Blanchard's mother was able to dupe doctors by telling them her daughter's medical records had been lost. In Hurricane Katrina. If they asked too many questions, she just found a new physician shaving the girl's head to back up her story. That's sick. That is sick. You're shaving your daughter's head to fake that she had. But she Latina. got to meet
1: some celebrities and get some VIP right. kind of status, so...
0: Among the unnecessary... If the pro- daughter was going along with it. I'd... She wasn't. She wasn't. Among the unnecessary procedures Gypsy Blanchard underwent was to the removal of her salivary glands. Her mother convinced doctors it was necessary by using topical anesthetic to cause drooling. Gypsy Blanchard had little schooling or contact with anyone but her mother, also was misled, especially when she was younger. Quote, the doctors seem to confirm everything that you're being told. The outside world is telling you that your mother is a wonderful, loving, caring person. What other idea can you have? Unquote. But then the abuse became more physical. Gypsy testified that her mother beat her and chained her to a bed. Slowly, Gypsy was beginning to understand that she wasn't as sick as her mom said. Quote, I wanted to be free of her hold on me. Gypsy testified at the 2018 trial of her former boyfriend, Nicholas Godejohn of Big Bend, Wisconsin, who was serving a life sentence in the killing. She went on to add, I talked him into it. So what happened is when her mom was uh, holding her captive, chaining her to a bed, telling her she has leukemia, shaving her head, none of this is true, right? Gypsy Rose got on social media and started communicating with the outside world, right? And her mom initially found out about it, smashed the computer. Uh, Gypsy Rose got a hold of another one. I don't know if this was done through a mobile device or another computer or what, but she eventually got on a Christian dating site. And met a Wisconsin boy. Go figure. And met Nicholas Godijon of Big Bend and convinced him to come and kill her mother, which he did. He left Wisconsin, Big Bend, which is in Waukesha County, and uh, stabbed her mother to death while Gypsy Rose was in the bathroom, like covering her ears when it happened. It said, according to the probable cause statement, Gypsy Blanchard supplied the knife and hid in a bathroom while Godijon repeatedly stabbed her her mother. The two ultimately weighed their way back to Wisconsin by bus where they were arrested. Green County Prosecutor Dan Patterson described it as one of the most extraordinary and unusual cases we have seen. He recalled the first time he met Gypsy, she got out of breath walking 75 yards from the elevator to the room where he talked to her. He described her as malnourished and physically frail. Quote, I can honestly say I've rarely had a client who looks exceedingly better after doing a fairly long prison sentence. Prison is generally not a place where you become happy and healthy, and I say that because, to me, that's kind of the evidence to the rest of the world as to just how bad what Gypsy was going through really was." The bizarre case was the subject of a 2017 HBO documentary, Mommy, Dead, and Dearest. The 2019 Hulu miniseries The Act and an upcoming Lifetime docuseries quote The Prison Confession, of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, which is started right now, you can see that.
1: There's a movie starring Sarah Paulson from American Horror Story fame called Run. That's on Hulu. That came out in 2020. That's a, it's not based on this story, but it's it's that kind of story, and it's really good, and it's something worth checking out if you just want to understand the whole concept.
0: So she was originally set, obviously her boyfriend is in prison for life. The boy from Wisconsin that she he, he came through for came her though. He I mean. Did. He,
1: Kind of psychotic you know, how willing he was to do it, but you know he came through for the one he loved. Love so. is blind, right? Right, and, and I mean Wisconsin, we're dedicated to our loved ones. Kind of similar to what the what we're point be, where we're kill for. What him.
0: we're going to be talking about today, kind of uh, uh, love is pretty blind, I guess. And so deadly. Just kind of a messed up situation here. Munchausen by proxy, not something you hear about very often. I thought you were having a stroke when you first said the term to me. So Quite the story here. She was originally sentenced to, I believe, to 10 years in prison, and now she's out. She got out three years early. So um, quite the story with, with a Wisconsin connection. Now, see, the thing is Gypsy Rose got married in prison to somebody else, right? To somebody from Louisiana, right? to not appreciate so, right, so the this, dedication, Jesus. So this guy's in prison for killing her mother, and she goes on and marries. Right? He doesn't even guy. get her eternal love
1: for it. So. His whole life is down to drain because he killed this girl's mother, and she doesn't even. Stay dedicated to him.
0: That's... Poor guy's on a Christian website, and he winds up in prison right. for the rest of his life. Yeah. And... That's why yeah. I don't
1: go on those that, that dating site, yeah. those Christian ones. Not a happy
0: ending for this guy. Another story here that I want to talk about, and this one, again, is based on DNA. We've talked quite a bit about DNA, uh, the advancements of DNA, and how it's solving cold cases. This is from Spectrum here. Quote, cold cases, cracked. Police named killer of two teens murdered nearly 60 years ago. Menominee Falls, two cold cases that have gone unsolved for nearly sixty years, have been solved thanks to DNA. The Menominee Falls Police Department and Milwaukee Police Department have named Clarence Tappendorf as the man who killed nineteen year old Diane Olkowitz of Menominee Falls and fifteen year old Terry Erdman of Milwaukee. In nineteen sixty six, Olkwitz was murdered while she was at her job after work at Kenworth Manufacturing Company. Police said she was stabbed more than 100 times. Yikes. And was found by a friend who was coming to pick her up. Her case had gone cold until now.
1: That's got to make you tired to stab 100 anything 100 times. times. My arm's getting sore just talking about it.
0: Says Clarence Tappendorf made a delivery across the street from Kenworth Manufacturing. Based on irrefutable physical evidence, it is a position of the Menominee Falls Police Department that Clarence Tappendorf is responsible for the murder of Diane Olkwitz. It was just a handful of years later, in 1971, That 15-year-old Erdman was murdered. Police said she was stabbed over 60 times after leaving a friend's house. This guy was... 160 times. A little overkill. Said over the years, police said they had about 20 to 30 suspects that were identified. However, it wasn't until 2021 that they made a break and realized that the cases were linked. In the summer of 2023, detectives were able to dig up Tappendorf's body and use forensic investigative genetic genealogy to test family members' DNA. This led Tappendorf to be a match, and he is now named as the man who murdered the two girls. So again, we have familial DNA come solve two more cases So this 60 years. Was this before. guy
1: ever a suspect before that?
0: They said they had 20 to 30 identified suspects, but... They didn't say that his name was one of them. I don't know.
1: Oh, but he his came to the front when they got the DNA. So it says,
0: while Tappendorf is named as the killer for both, many wonder if there are more victims. Right? Tappendorf died in 2008, and while police said they don't have any leads, as of now they will be storing his DNA to test any other unsolved similar cases during <laughs> that era. So basically, even in, in 1966 and 1971, they were keeping samples Like for, they knew it was coming like, ahead. Right, for further advancements in a, in, they in figured, forensic they
1: figured this this kind of stuff is individual to a person but they didn't have the technology but they knew it was on the horizon right so. they,
0: i mean nobody in 1966 was hearing about dna
1: yeah they 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 had some kind of vision that they realized what technology would come along so good for them and,
0: and again this was this is familial dna that they're using that are nabbing these people 50 60 years later and that's happening all the time and as we we've, mentioned few times we've talked about this numerous times um, familial DNA, it really seems to be a game changer in solving a lot of these cold cases. Bringing closure
1: to these families who've been dealing with these questions since it happened. So that's its a good thing.
0: Now, speaking of cold cases, here's another thing here. It says police asked for tips in solving 1987 homicide near Michigan-Wisconsin border. Was, and this just came out. This is just a couple weeks ago that they're asking for this. A Wisconsin Sheriff's Department is asking for help from Michigan residents in solving a decades-old homicide near the border of the states. The Marinette County Sheriff's Office revealed Wednesday new tips are needed to close the homicide investigation of 32-year-old David Hunter of Green Bay. David Hunter was found dead on November 24, 1987, at a makeshift campsite in a forest in Niagara, Wisconsin, a town right on the state lines. Investigators believe he was killed at the makeshift camp. Hunter was last seen alive on November November 14th, 1987, which was 10 days before his body was found. News reports at the time said he was killed with a small caliber handgun, and his guns were also missing from his camp. Money was still in his pockets. An article in the Green Bay Press-Gazette dated November 28th, 1987, said Hunter got around by walking or hitchhiking. He stopped at a bar in Pembine a few times and was described as outgoing... Friendly and talkative. He said he planned to leave his camp before the deer hunting season started on November 21st. Now the fact that they're asking people for information about this murder that happened in 1987 makes me believe that they have something again. That there's a reason now, 40 years later, that they're coming out asking for stuff about this, why this murder Right? I mean, how many murders have there been since 1987 in this area? And they're coming out asking for information about this. This leads me to believe that they have something. Right. This is what I would would assume. So I believe that there's going to be more information coming about this case uh, coming up. It says, anyone with information on the case is asked to contact the Marinette County Sheriff's Office at 715-732-7310 or Marinette County Crime Stoppers at one 800 427 5857. Five, it is nice that this
1: technology has come along to solve some of these long time cold cases. It's just too bad that it wasn't around earlier so that these families and victims could have sooner closure, but it's nice that it's happening now.
0: So, December 23rd, 1977. So, th- this was another story, another. Famous Wisconsin trial, really. I mean, it came out. A a movie was made about this. It was pretty big, yeah. uh, Well, a book came out first called The Winter of Frozen Dreams, and then a movie came out uh, about it as well. Again, another nationally known murder in the great state of Wisconsin that made uh, a lot of headlines when it was going on.
1: April 4th, 2016, the movie with the same title came out.
0: Winter of Frozen Dreams, right? Yeah. So December 23rd, 1977. 31 year old Jerry Davies is hanging out at his girlfriend's apartment in Madison, right? State Street, Madison. We've all been there.
1: Sure. I've forgotten a lot of fun times there.
0: His girlfriend is 25 year old Barbara Hoffman. Now, Barbara didn't drive. So Jerry had gone to her apartment that night, but Barbara didn't want to stay there. She wanted to, she's kind of restless. She wanted to do other things. So they actually drove back to Jerry's apartment for a while. They listened to music. Jerry lived on Park Street. It's a little outside of downtown. They listened to music, they hung out. They both seem to be in a good mood, though, right? Festive mood leading up to the holidays, December 23rd. After a while, they return to Barbara's apartment. Again, State Street, 638 State Street, apartment 306. Still there. It's actually right above Campus Street Sportswear. So they return to Barbara's apartment. They have some drinks. They're watching Johnny Carson. You know, just kind of a low-key night, and they're lying on the couch until...
1: Make it sound like you were there. Until they both fall asleep. How did you find all this
0: shit out? Watching Johnny Carson. They're watching Johnny Carson on a 12-inch <laughs> TV. Streaming
1: Hulu. Oh, that didn't exist back then.
0: <laughs> now, <next> thing, Netflix <laughs> and chill, doing all that. Yeah, Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon and chill.
1: <laughs> right.
0: right. <laughs> next thing Jerry knows, Barbara's calling his name and waking him up. Right? So she's like, Jerry, wake up.
1: Not in the good way.
0: She's like, I got to talk to you about something. And Jerry wakes up and he's like, what the hell's going on? You know, it's 2.30 in the morning. What's up? Now, Barbara proceeds to tell him. Quite a story. She said that when she got home to her apartment yesterday, she found a body in her bathroom. In the bathtub. A body, a dead, naked, human. dead body in the tub. And she needed. Bashed be, in the head. She needed Jerry to help him get rid of it. I mean, is that that big a deal? I find that yeah, in my right, bathroom like not? every other Just day? get rid of it your damn self. Jeez. Ah, so I mean, it happens. Now, the body was not in her bathroom anymore. She had already brought it outside and covered it up in a snowbank out in the back of the building by a dumpster. So Jerry's like, well, all right, we got to call the police, right? You find a body in your apartment. We got to call the police. And she says, no, they can't do that. She's like, how am I going to explain a body in my bathroom, right? They're going to pin this on me. How do I explain a dead person in my apartment? And
1: she's acting like she has no idea who the body is at this point and all that stuff. She
0: she says that, she tells him that she thinks people at her place of employment were trying to frame her. So she believes people that she worked with killed this person, put it in her bathroom while she was out. And now, obviously, she'll be accused of that, that murder. So this is the story that she tells Jerry. So Jerry— Well,
1: first she, she wrapped the body up in a but she dragged it outside and hid it out in the snowbank, as you said.
0: So she tells Jerry to go get his car and pull it around the back because that's where the body was. She's like, it's, it's Christmas week. Nobody's around, right? This is right on campus or right by campus. It's dead. It's 2.30 in the morning. Just go get your car, pull it around back, and then we'll put the body in your car and we'll get rid of it.
1: Just trying to think of what they should do. They just, uh, once again, kind of a similar result that she did in the first place. They just came to the conclusion they should put, just put it in a bigger snowbank. That's all they could come up with.
0: So so Jerry, who's smitten with Barbara, to say the least, right? Well, you're not doing this otherwise, again, probably. Love is blind. Yeah, Wisconsin love, man. <laughs> He's going to do it. So he runs and gets his car, and he backs it into the dumpsters, where and, and Barbara's there, and she's digging the body out of the snow. Now, this is one of the coldest winters on record in Wisconsin, the the winter of 77, 78. It's about 10 below zero right now when they're doing it. It always this. happens
1: when you find a body in yeah. your tub. The weather just never cooperates. Right. Ridiculous.
0: There's already a bunch of snow on the ground. There's nobody around. She's digging this body out, and the body is wrapped, as Mickey said, in bed sheets. So Jerry can't really see much of it. He knows it's a man, and it's been in the freezing cold for about 24 hours now. So it was the day prior that she had already brought the body out and stuck it out in the snowbank. So it's frozen solid. Now he drives a Chevy. I don't know the exact model, but it's, just, it's not, you know, there's no, we're in the days before SUVs, right? It's just a car, right? It's a car with a trunk.
1: Like my Nissan Sentra.
0: So they, they initially, they try to put the body in the trunk, but they can't bend. They can't bend the body. because it's, it's stiff. Fr- it's stiff. literally stiff. He- right. So it doesn't fit in the trunk. And it doesn't fit in the back seat the long way. The car's not big enough, right? So they're, they're maneuvering this frozen body, and they try to cram it in. This is like a freaking—this is like Fargo. Right. <laughs> so yeah, except they're, this really happened. They're trying, to, they're trying to cram this frozen body in the car, right? So they wind up lowering the passenger seat all the way down, and they laid the body diagonally. And neither one of these people had experience
1: doing this, for the record. So it's not like you just know what to do. So Typically, they, this is a
0: first-time instance for most people. So they lay the body diagonally with his head in the back seat in Barbara's lap. Sure. And his, the the feet up front towards Jerry where he's driving, and the dude's toes are, like, protruding out of the sheet and touching the dash. I mean, ima- imagine this scene. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, freezing cold. The body is frozen stiff. And she's driving in the back seat with this dude's head in her lap, right? So they're driving now with this with this body in their car. And they're passing Science Hall, and they go up Bascom Hill and onto Observatory Drive, right? And they're trying to figure out what to do with this body. And they're going to go bury it initially on Picnic Point. But they decided that they wanted to go further out than that. A much
1: bigger snowbank. That's That was their conclusion. Let's find the biggest snowbank we can think of.
0: So they wind up driving like further west of Madison, out near the Blackhawk Ski Club.
1: About 20 minutes from there, Blackhawk Ski Club on Tomahawk Ridge.
0: And they come, and they come upon a, a big snowbank surrounded by a grove of elm trees, and that is where Barbara decided she wanted to, to bury the body. So here they are. It's like 4 in the morning now, right? It's pitch black. They're burying the body in the snow in the middle of nowhere. Now the heat from the car is starting to thaw the sheets a little bit. A little bit. So when they drug the body out, the sheets pulled up and exposed some of the man's body. And Jerry saw a c- quick glance of quite a bit of what looked like trauma to the man's groin area. And Barbara quick covered it up right away. They buried the body and they drove away.
1: Agreeing to keep it all secret and tell absolutely nobody because obviously they both stood to be in trouble.
0: So he drops Barbara back off at her apartment. She tells him to scrub down the car. And he drives away, and he went to his hometown of Spring Green to celebrate Christmas with his mother.
1: They parted ways, planning to spend Christmas separately.
0: So now the body in the snowbank would eventually be found to be 52-year-old Harold Burge, who was a rather simple man, originally from Edgerton, which is just north of, of Janesville.
1: Born in 1925 on a farm just outside of Edgerton.
0: So he's born on a dairy farm. Never really, his family never really did well. So they were they were really more sustenance farmers, even though technically they were on a dairy farm. The dairy farm really didn't bring in any money. So they were sustenance farmers, which means that they pretty much lived off of what they farmed.
1: Self-sufficient, which yeah. is, as, as your book would mention, th- that was the case a lot of times. And they,
0: they sold what they could. And they were a very Norwegian family from a very Norwegian community. Very Norwegian. You know, he's a very tra- from a very traditional family. Very simple man. Again, they're not rich. He had one sister
1: who lived nearby, and she had a husband. He lived on a farm with his parents, as we said, until forced to sell. Then then he ended up moving to Stoughton, Wisconsin, and he took a job there at Royal Tire Plant to support his retired parents. Not much longer than that, both parents passed away uh, within four years of that, and he remained in that same home all by himself. Dad passed first, then Mom passed a couple years later. The sister would actually come visit once a week, and he also would join his sister and her husband in Christmas dinner every year.
0: So Harry said that the when they had to sell the farm, again, because they, they just couldn't make it work, it was the saddest day of his Which life. Which typical throughout the state. Right. He, he couldn't make it, they, the family couldn't make it work. He lived there, he grew up there, right? And the day that they had to sell that, it was the saddest day of his life. So he goes and he lives his parents, like Mickey just said, lives with his parents in Stoughton. And his parents never really recovered from leaving their dream, right? They could never get that farm to really provide for them. And they... That's all they knew. That's so, all they knew. Yeah,
1: so their lives were basically over. And often that's why people end up passing away, because they have nothing to live for, in their opinion.
0: So now here's Harry Burge. He's 46 years old now, and he's on his own. He he never dated. It just seemed natural for him to stay with his parents and around the house. Only well, had, had a few friends. His sister said that he was... She thought he was celibate, right? Because he never dated. He never had girlfriends. He was He was always with his parents. And when his parents were gone, he was now this kind of middle-aged man living alone in a house, in, typically in their house. And
1: typically, as the case, he was very much a creature of habit with simple tastes. He always wore the same gray shorts, matching pants, and cap on his head. He bowled once a week, saw occasional movie in Madison, and built model railroads in the cellar and porch of his house. He grew wax, beans, and tomatoes in the summer. Every Sunday, he drove into the country, passed the old family farm, and then visited with friends farm in Cambridge, Wisconsin, east of Madison.
0: So, no, we, we all kind of know this person, don't we? We all know this this kind of middle-aged man who um, really, related to some of them. really kind of always lived at home, never was uh, much of a social butterfly, maybe we shy, all, socially shy.
1: We all have that guy in our family, if not.
0: Right. So here he is alone, a very simple man living a very solitary existence, right? So that's who was found to be the buried body in the, in the snowbank. But during the investigation into his murder tucked away in a closet in the house that he used to share with his parents. Police found a shoebox full of receipts from Madison Massage Parlors, totaling about $1,600 between 1974 and 1976, which would be well over $8,000 today. Seems that Mr. Burge here liked to frequent Madison's seedy underground massage parlor scene of the 19. Seventies. So, beginning in the early nineteen seventies, Madison began growing its own little red light district with quote unquote massage parlors. The They're first fun one, places. I the heard. first one opened in nineteen seventy two, and by nineteen seventy six, they had forty two massage parlors slash escort services slash strip clubs.
1: Well, this was Jan's health spa. I thought it was a health spa type right. environment. I
0: don't know what the confusion would be there. Yeah, it's healthy. Now, most of these were on the one hundred block of Main Street. Right, blocks from the Capitol, basically in the shadow of the Capitol. Kind of where Mas- Senior Machetes is now. Actually, Senior Machetes is one of these former buildings. Or the Rigby. You know, These businesses were called This is Heaven. The Mustang Inn. The <laughs> Dangle Lounge. The Dangle Lounge. right? Charlotte's Web.
1: These are the kind of names we discussed in the Coons family yeah. murder type thing with the porn videos. The, the, these the, are humorous.
0: The Geisha Bathhouse. <laughs> Genie's magic touch and the rising sun, among others.
1: This is heaven. Straight to the point.
0: So in an article in the Capital Times of January 23rd, 1978, they talk about this, quote, sleazy underside, unquote, of Madison. And it says there is another side to this Athens of the Midwest, referring to Madison.
1: Athens of the Midwest.
0: A side, a side which... Like some modern-day vampire sleeps during the day but each evening a cadre of night people gather to buy and sell sexual favors (laughs) nice terms Mm -hmm. night people in motel rooms massage parlors and bars and discotheques the word is passed around as to who is available and for what it is not only sex which attracts people to, to massage parlors the madison parlors according to reliable sources have become havens of hard drug use and peddling. In some instances, they even have been used as centers for trafficking stolen goods.
1: I thought you were going to say it was their technique as far as the massage. Huh, I guess I was wrong.
0: Or at the deep tissue massage or or just just the normal one? knowing really how to
1: to make the body feel better,
0: yeah. So one man, a parlor regular, recalls having been offered a whole truckload of stolen tires and countless others were given the names of, quote, friendly doctors, unquote, who were here in town and would be willing to provide pharmaceutical speed and heavy tranquilizers such as quaaludes. So the Rising Sun was actually the last remaining one of these, and as as recently as 2014, they were still around and still getting busted for prostitution. (laughs) And we're we're pretty much forced to close down, and I believe that is the Rigby today. The Rigby uh, Pub and Grill in Madison, which is a fairly well-known place, used to be the Rising Sun, which is one of these Massage parlors that we're we're talking about.
1: Got to give them credit for being persistent. They didn't give up. They didn't. That's the old Wisconsin
0: college try right there. And one of the most notorious of these establishments, and the one that Harold Burge liked to spend the most money at, as Mickey mentioned, was a place called Jan's Health Spa.
1: Just sounds like a nice place to visit, you know, just feeling good about yourself. Going to the sauna, you know, a little racquetball. Get some health. Let's just go there and get some health.
0: Now, Jans was not Play on some Jans was not on Main Street, uh, you know, where the hub of most of the others were. It was further away. It was on the southwest side of the city in what was then called the Brookwood Village Shopping Center. So it was in the basement of this like little mini mall, kind of strip mall type deal. Now I believe it's a it's a it's a true value hardware store, I think. It's, sure. Or it's Dorns Ace, I think. Natural transition hardware store. I like so, how you said strip mall too, those fitting words. Right. So the building's still there. It's just uh, they deal in other kind of tools. <laughs> I see what you did there. So in the book Winter of Frozen Dreams, again, by Carl Harder was the author. And the book, this is really the the only book that I've seen, this kind of comprehensive study of this case. Now, what Harder says in his book Winter of Frozen Dreams, he says, quote, at Jans, one could get massaged, engage in oral sex and intercourse, watch two women make love, get tied up in leather and whipped score a lid of dope, or even buy a small-caliber weapon.
1: This is really dark and seedy, but it just makes me laugh. Yeah. So what does that tell you about my sense and, of
0: humor? I mean, and, and for Madison, that was pretty hardcore. You know, it wasn't only... It wasn't as typical, but... Basically a whorehouse, but you could get a lot of drugs and guns. There right, but
1: th- this kind of sets the scene for the whole... whole at that point.
0: Now it featured black walls and blue lights with women walking around and you know high heels, lingerie. It was so popular that on weekends. let go there right now. About that Black walls and blue lights you can just, can't you just smell this place? Right oh yeah
1: <laughs> I've been in bars that smelled like that and it didn't have nearly as much going on.
0: Now on weekends it was so popular that the I line. I do want to go there right now though to be honest with you. Well you can go to True very Hardware store it'll <laughs> they'll take you Same right there. Same
1: difference in. the smell will still linger.
0: <laughs> so the line would spill out into the street. Of these guys, they did that good a job with these places waiting in line. Sure. See, so, now you know. You know I, I look at this and I'm like, if if I would, and I full disclosure, I've never been to one of these places. I don't even know. I don't know where you where could. you could. Right. But if you're doing that, wouldn't you want to? Wouldn't you want to be discreet about it? Right. Like these guys are just hanging in line like they're buying fucking tickets. Right. I've I've like, been
1: to a place in Vegas, but. Yeah, nothing like this, and like you said, you you wouldn't think you'd just be <laughs> trying to get some bread and you know some yeah some stuff at the convenience. Like are they store. talking
0: about the girl that they're going to ask for? I don't know. I don't know. Right? You know, in version, I guess they I didn't mean, have
1: phones back then either, so they're not taking right. up their time while they're standing and in line. They're
0: all drunk and high on Quaaludes, anyways. So I guess it doesn't it doesn't really matter. A line <laughs> they're not going to remember each the... other, anyways. Right? Probably, I, guess.
1: I guess. Yeah. Everybody's there, is gone. So now it seems Harry
0: Burst spent most of his money at Jan's. Uh, because Harry was into some kinky shit. Harry was a loner. He was an isolated guy, but he liked things uh, a little differently than most people. Uh, so much different that a lot of girls in the other places wouldn't deal with him. Right, this lonely shy man who'd never had a girlfriend uh, had a little bit of a of a different angle. A dark to him.
1: side. He, he learned some things about himself that he wanted to, to be executed. To that point, most people who knew him wouldn't have known that either. So. With age, he grew lonelier. On a winter day in 1975, he decided to visit Jan's health spa by himself. Once there, he chose random masseuse and went back to the room with her. Not capable or willing to execute what he asked for, the masseuse left the room and went up to the front to report happenings. Another masseuse decided to come back and found him nude and pleading for the simple favor, and she went along with it. So, even Jan's health spa, not all of the masseuses or helpers or whatever you'd call them back then, not even they didn't all want to be involved, but... He did find one.
0: There was one girl that he requested every time he went there, sometimes having to wait hours. (laughs) Like, they wait for hours for this Standing in line for this one girl. So, you know, basically waiting until she's done with other guys. It's nice to be popular and wanted, isn't it? And her name, of course, as we go back to the top, was Barbara Hoffman. She knew what she was doing. It seems like old Harry here liked to be punished. So he brought with him an extension cord to be whipped while he was handcuffed with, you know, kind of cheap dime store cuffs. So Barbara would do this, right? She would take that extension cord and she would whip him.
1: Well, the first time he asked, wanted someone, he asked these favors from the first masseuse and she stormed out of the room, just disgust. But Barbara came in. She calmly picked up the cord that he threw at her across the room. She walked toward him without warning and just began whipping him. The cord cut across the shoulders, spine, and chest. After about a dozen whips, he begged her to stop. She added two more, just for just for good measure, and stopped. As Burge wept from pain, she dipped the towel in the cool water and dabbed his wounds. That's so sweet, it. He then dressed, introduced himself to her, and asked if he could request her next time. After she said yes, he left two on the table and left. He would return many times, as we mentioned, always requesting Miss Hoffman.
0: $8,000 in three years he spent at Jan's Health Spa. Now, this is 50 bucks a pop. This is a relationship. Right? This is 50 bucks a pop for 35 minutes. $8,000 in two years. Three years. That's a lot of money. It's like a girlfriend. Uh, that's, right? a, that's a lot of times getting whipped by a fucking extension right. cord, man.
1: Well, you, found, you found someone willing to do it. That's love, man right
0: right I, I guess it's been and a
1: while since i've been in love maybe that's not what it smells like
0: you know and the funny thing is a lot of times they wouldn't even do that sometimes he just wanted her attention right he would it, just they would talk just they talk. wouldn't
1: no physical uh interaction whatsoever yeah sometimes so like i said it basically it became a relationship
0: it's somebody paying attention to
1: him right right and he's he's lonely he's in older years he doesn't have a lot of people in his life and he's lonely and this woman was getting paid to do it and she was willing
0: Now, Barbara was a pretty hot commodity in the Madison parlor scene. She was well-known in high demand. She was known as the queen. I don't know if she was the queen of the parlor scene. She was known as the queen of something. I don't remember what that was, but she had a nickname as being the queen. So she's really the most well-known of all of these paid uh, masseuses, if we want to call them. But she wasn't always drawn to this kind of life in the seedy underbelly of sex drugs and extension cords.
1: Actually, she was a pretty impressive woman up until that point. Right. Although this is impressive depending on who you are.
0: So she's from Park Ridge, Illinois, initially, right? Chicago area. Born in 1952. So Rosemont, Illinois area, uh, just outside of Chicago. So her college entrance exams placed her in the 98th percentile, and her IQ was tested at 145, which is deemed... Highly gifted. Accepted threshold is 130 to 140 or above to be considered genius. So she was a pretty smart girl. Pretty smart cookie. She went to Butler University in Indianapolis on a full ride scholarship.
1: She graduated with honors from Maine South High School. She was also a National Honor Society scholar and she played the French horn. So this was an all American girl. As he said, she earned a full scholarship to Butler University and enrolled. She earned all A's and joined the sorority Phi Beta Kappa while there. Also, allegedly becoming fluent in three languages while there.
0: So she's killing it. No it's, pun intended there. Right? She's, <laughs> nice choice of words. She's she's killing it, but her, she's her future is bright. She's got to wear shades, man. right? She's bored. She's bored. So she winds up leaving Butler, goes to UIC for a bit, University of Illinois at Chicago, and then she transfers to UW Madison, and she majors in biochemistry.
1: She she studied biochemistry, earning all A's in all the core subjects. So this girl. Whether she was a good student or not, she was smart enough to just do it.
0: 1973, she was awarded a summer scholarship to the University of Utah to assist in research of protein synthesis. She maintained a 3.9 GPA for over two years at Madison. And then in 1974, she's only 12 credits shy of her degree, she drops out. She quits Madison. She submits a letter seeking a leave of absence due to illness, which was granted She re-enrolled in the spring of 1975, but she withdrew. She re-enrolled again in the fall, went for five weeks, withdrew again. And she actually continues this for two years. She re-enrolls, drops out, re-enrolls, drops out. And Madison kept extending her her leave of absence because they didn't want to lose her, right? I mean, this this is a Dean's List student who's obviously very bright. Those schools want to keep those people. She's got a bright future in her eyes. So they they kept letting her do this. Until 1977. When she just quit.
1: U- UW-Madison would only accept her on a trial basis at that point. Now, before then, as Scott mentioned, she was in Utah. After returning, she, she found what was temporary work at a massage parlor, what was supposed to be temporary work, at Jan's Health Studio. She allegedly told her mother she signed on for the receptionist position. Well, we've already seen that that was... More evolved than that. Once at this place, drugs often were used to to make the shift go faster for a lot of these masseuses. She spent more and more time at the parlor. So she's dating at the time. She's she's a typical, living life, but she's more and more into the drugs and the alcohol. And at some point, she was enjoying what she was doing, but she wanted more. Believe it or not, she she actually aspired to open a, a parlor of her own and let the secret slip to other co-workers. Starting to have prominent clients sign for loans. She then defaulted on her payments, leaving cosigners holding the debt. Fearing adverse publicity, all co-signers quietly repaid the loans because, you know, this is a CD lifestyle. Finally, part owner-manager of Jan's Health Studio, William Grover Garrett, found out about this and forced Hoffman to stop doing it. And that kind of started contributing to her demise.
0: So th- th- this very smart woman, 4.0 student, 3.9 student, Dean's List, starts dropping out of school, can't focus on schoolwork because she realized how much money she could make she
1: became consumed by the doing the other thing money right? right and she as we mentioned became very popular
0: so the money was coming in quickly she also worked part time at the rising sun so she's again she's the queen and she works at sherry's too which is another one so she's kind of freelancing
1: among <laughs> nice choice of words in this context. among
0: all of this 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 entire red light district of madison most of her time being spent at Jan's she's moonlighting. health spot. So Harry Burge continues to see her pretty often to the point where they start seeing each other outside of work. Which on the surface is weird, right? From her perspective, she's this, this beautiful, young, smart, very high-in-demand woman. But naturally quiet and
1: introverted, so that's why she she became more animated. while on the combination that she became really used to doing, which is a combination of quaaludes and wine, yeah, very accomplished, intelligent woman with a future ahead of her, but kind of shy and reserved. Once she got this stuff in her system, she became a whole different person.
0: And and he's 52. He's lonely, right? Kind of short, balding, stocky, portly. No relationship background. Dude, stop looking at me when you <laughs> likes train sets. Shut up. I don't even have it set up. <laughs> so so they, they they're a little bit of an odd couple, right?
1: but she's giving him the attention he wants and right. she's
0: making the money so they both win
1: i guess if that's the word
0: so they start dating and also she, she you know she does something that makes him believe that she's really legit about their relationship she quits the massage parlors and gets a straight job right she starts working at an office job somewhere that's love man right she she quits you know jerking guys off and and gets a job picking up telephones and so this tells harry that same same feeling i guess so, so yeah similar so this tells harry that all right she's she's really in for it and also she wants to forget about that part of her life you know not only did she quit the massage parlors she wants to erase that part of her life away so how about i get an alias how about i get a second identity right so she changes her name not legally but she starts using an alias Linda Millar, M I L L A R. So she goes out with him in public, she meets some of his bowling buddies, right, and he introduces her as his fiance. Linda Millar. So now people are like, Whoa, Harry. <laughs> right? We you never had a girlfriend woman. in your life, and, and now we're meeting somebody for one. the first and right, and you're gonna you're gonna marry this woman for the first time. But Harry is I've had, had a few friends like that too. Harry is head over heels. He loves Linda Millar. Oh,
1: she's giving him the attention he wants. She's willing to do the dark, twisted things he likes, and they've spent a lot of time together getting to know each other. I mean, well, he, that's he, what love looks
0: like to a lot of us. he They had no sexual relationship outside of the massage parlor, though, so he tolerates the that fact— That sounds like
1: a lot of marriages I know to this day, actually.
0: He tolerates the fact that they have no sexual relationship outside of work and that she— also really seemed to be spending a lot less time with him as time went on. You know, she'd be seeing him maybe once every other week or so. And he was rolling with that because, again, this is this is the woman that's going to be his wife, right? So all of that other stuff. And he'd never had, as he said, never had a relationship to, to base anything on. So he doesn't
1: know what it's like. He right. doesn't know that this isn't normal. So, yeah, he's going along with it because he's in love, whether she is or not.
0: So they don't have a sexual relationship. She doesn't spend a whole lot of time Unless with Unless there's them. money involved. Right. But he's okay with that, so much so that in October of 1977, he made Barbara Hoffman or Linda Millar the sole beneficiary of his $34,000 life insurance policy and also put the deed of his house in her name. (laughs) That's love, man. That's love.
1: At least for Wisconsin men, apparently.
0: And on Christmas night of 1977, Harry Burgess' sister calls the Madison police to report that her brother did not show up for the Christmas meal. Now, the reason Barbara Hoffman had been seeing less and less of Harold Burge, not that she saw him much anyways, really, but the reason that she was clearly doing other things...
1: Fading away from him.
0: She was also somebody else's fiance. She was also engaged at the same time that she was to Harold Burge, "quote unquote" engaged, to Mister Jerry Davies.
1: That name sounds familiar.
0: Who helped her dispose of a body which mysteriously turned up in her bathroom? Now, Jerry and Harold's stories are are pretty similar. Not necessarily their backgrounds, but definitely their their current situations. Jerry was was from Spring Green, born in 1946. His parents were divorced when he was young and he had not seen his father by this time since he was a teenager. Now he's 31. He was the youngest of seven siblings, siblings
1: with, as he said, father abandoning them and mother forced to raise them with little or no money. All the children fled the nest as soon as possible and moved far away. Jerry, on the other hand, stayed nearby and visited mother whenever he could. She was getting older and expected him to take care of her on a regular basis, but... As Scott mentioned, like Harold Burge, Davies never had a girlfriend. He wasn't that kind of guy. And he eventually gravitated towards the massage parlors for companionship. He met Hoffman at Jan's Health Studio. Didn't have the kinky tastes of Burge. As Scott mentioned, Davies' age was 31. He was much closer in age to Hoffman. He was working in an audio-visual department as a shipping clerk at UW-Madison
0: and lived in an apartment in Madison when he met her. So Jerry's a loner as well, right? Just like Harold. Just a younger version. 31 years old, never had a girlfriend. Never touched a woman, never kissed a woman. it's right? almost like she's got a type, or she's for multiple reasons, or she's praying on she's a, a type. predator,
1: yes, that's the word I would have used
0: right, so he's thirty one he lives in Madison, but he still goes back to Spring Green every weekend to hang out with his mom right they go to they go to basketball games, they go to football games, so this is his life you know he he as Mickey said, he gets a job as an audio video guy at u w Madison, pays him ten thousand dollars a year. he doesn't make any money. And he's just this this lonely guy, very much like Harold Burge. He's a mama's boy, shy, not a lot of friends, lives alone. And he's been alone for a long time, right? 31 years old. So he gets the idea to go to Jans, but he couldn't quite get the courage right away. right? So he thought about it for days, thought about it for two or three days, and then he got a six-pack of beer and finally went in there. And that was the first time he'd ever been intimately touched by a woman. First time he ever... A woman ever touched him sexually so romantic
1: right just so we all draw it up
0: so the first two times he was there it was pretty routine right strictly business he goes in pays him the 50 bucks whatever happens happens he leaves right strictly business <laughs> but he liked it yeah. he liked it right so he went there a third time and on the third time he got Barbara Hoffman so Harder says in his book he says quote Barbara was different she didn't linger about the lobby in peekaboo negligee and black lace panties She didn't toss seductive glances, didn't paint her face to resemble a Kupai doll. A natural beauty emanated from her. Brown hair fell past her shoulders and framed a delicate face. The skin was smooth and pale. Her eyes were flecked brown and held a gentleness he hadn't expected to see. Her lips were not splashed red and were tilted almost pensively. Davies was immediately entranced. Barbara didn't smile coyly. She looked straight into his eyes.
1: Makes her Uncle. sound like a goddess.
0: She didn't make herself up like the rest of those girls did, right? She didn't wear makeup. She didn't... It was just you know, her natural look. It was just her naturalness. And I, her,
1: and that's why these guys probably fell in love with her so quickly. She was just who she was.
0: And she treated them differently, right? right? She, she gave them, them the attention people. that they wanted. right, Which...
1: We'll get into later on is just, what that says about her and everything.
0: You know, she she treated them for whatever the purpose, even though this if if it was her true personality or if obviously she had another agenda in mind. She gave them what they wanted. She treated them like people. Well, she like, listened to them. She treated like, them more on an intimate level. Like everybody wants. That's
1: ultimately that's what it comes right. down to for all of us. And she just she was a person treating other people like people, and she wasn't above it. She she didn't, as you said, she didn't have ulterior motives. or She didn't make it seem that way, at right. least. She seemed very genuine.
0: So at first, Jerry would see her at Jan's about once a month, and then those would gradually increase. And every time he would go there, he would request Barbara.
1: And other things would increase, too.
0: Right? And again, just like Harry, willing to wait for hours until she's done with all of her other Johns, so they get their... Turn. And again, sometimes it wasn't sexual at all. They just wanted her attention.
1: Which is pretty typical for these guys that are commoners at these places.
0: So eventually she suggested that they see each other outside of work. Jerry was surprised at this, but he's like, Hell, Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they begin dating. And now again, Jerry has, just like Harry, his first girlfriend, which is. Some hottie from a massage parlor, right? It's his first kiss. It's his first everything. So he's he's hooked. But again, they don't have sex. She actually tells him she's going to therapy because of her her job has has tainted her desire for sex. Sure, happens to me. But again, to or not so much to to prove her love for Jerry, she's going to quit the massage parlor, and she does. She does quit, and she gets a straight job. But she only allows him to see her for dates once or twice a week. right? So we have mirror images of each other going on. Two different men at the same time, neither one knowing about the other. Now he gave her a ride to work every morning. So even though she would only go on dates with him once or twice a week, he saw her every morning because she didn't have a car. So Jerry gave her a ride to work every morning and she started her office job.
1: Not even in a good way, literally just a ride to work.
0: So they, I mean, even though they both lived alone, they both lived in an apartment, he would rarely stay at her place, even though he gave her a ride to work every morning.
1: As we explained early in the episode, they didn't spend the night together that night that they found the body in the tow. even.
0: Eventually they get engaged and they set up a wedding date. Sounds like love to me. (laughs) They're going to get married that summer, you know? But eventually... For reasons he didn't really understand, they <laughs> I think post- that's the key. <laughs> they postponed the wedding and she didn't quite want to get to setting a second date yet. Now, on the morning of December 23rd, he dropped her off at work like he did every day and asked if she wanted to get together before he went to Spring Green to spend Christmas with its mother over the holidays. And she said, No, you know what? Just call me a few days after Christmas. I've
1: been to Taliesin. I don't need to
0: be there again. We'll get together then. Just call me in a couple days. But by this time, Jerry's getting a little bit skeptical, right? Maybe something is going on with her. The once or twice a week thing has dwindled down to about once every other week. Even for him. He sees cigarette butts in her apartment, though she doesn't smoke, right? And what little affection she had shown him had decreased. Even more. So he's he's getting a little bit nervous that... They're not even married yet. That something's going on here. But that night, right, he's home. He's thinking he's not going to see her, right? He's going to call her in a few days, which he said. His phone rings, and it's her. Hey, you still want to come over tonight? So he flies over there, <laughs> right?
1: Didn't even put clothes on. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude.
0: He gets in his car. Literally flew. And he goes right to her apartment. And that's the night she tells him about this random body that she had already removed and put it back outside by the dumpsters. And after that night, they dispose of the body. He drives out to Spring Green to be with his mother for Christmas, and she heads back to Chicago to be with her family. But there was a little bit of a difference between Jerry and Barbara, and that's the fact that Jerry had a conscience. Right, He couldn't shake the fact that he just helped bury a body. So after contemplating this for a while and dealing with this internally about how he should handle this, at 10.15 a.m. on Christmas morning, 1977. December 25th, in case you don't know. Jerry Davies arrives at Madison Police Department. Only about 30 hours after hiding the body at the Black Hawks Ski Club snowbank. And he tells the police that he just buried a body. And you know those cops were pissed. Man, because
1: right? he, he stayed tight-lipped for a long time, first of all, didn't he? Guy, you really know what I keep a secret. A day and a half. Right. Not even a day and six hours.
0: And those cops are sitting there on Christmas morning and they're mm-hmm. thinking they're just going to cruise right, right. through. Right. Nothing's going
1: to happen. Everybody's <laughs> at home celebrating with their family.
0: Who's this fucking guy? So they get a team together and they call homicide detective Chuck Lulling and they all drive out to Blackhawk Ski Club. And Jerry points out where he and Barbara buried this body. So they walk up to the snowbank. And again, it's 22 below outside. That's the actual temperature. It's twenty-two below zero. And these cops don't believe his story for one second. It's forty-one below with wind chill. So these cops have to go out there because this crazy guy comes in says they he don't, don't believe him. But right. they
1: gotta go. Out. They they figure it'd be a slow day. They could just get home <laughs> without any forty-one you know, below. Right. And and now they got this crazy guy telling this story that they don't believe, and they're freezing their
0: stuff off. So they're walking to this snowbank, and then they see what they originally looked like a tree branch sticking out was actually an arm wasn't a tree branch frozen solid and turning dark turning black the skin on the arm was turning black and so they begin digging this body out of the snowbank they expose the head and they can see obviously it's a male middle-aged that's been beaten rather harshly bashed in the head tied up
1: in rope the police started to believe his story might have Yeah, some, it
0: might be something to it. Some, yeah, some truth. So his head and face were blackened from being covered in bruises and dried blood, and then they exposed the rest of his body, which was nude in the snow. And again, his, his genital area was ravaged. Battered and hideously swollen and bloated,
1: like, quote, two shiny black tomatoes brimming to burst, unquote
0: that paint a picture for you two shiny black tomatoes brimming to burst not you know i mean that's just poetry right you know that book winter of frozen dreams it's like it's like half porn and half poetry not well no porn por- pornitry pornitry there it is it's right there <laughs> that's my term damn it and half you know drawn out courtroom drama so right you know but this this guy a couple of times in the book it's i think he gets a little too um, graphic, a little too joyous. Writing some of this stuff, all oh, right. You know, like there's some, some of the sex much. scenes and things. It's like, it's almost like he's a kid writing this stuff, and he's like, "I'm really gonna get the reader with this," and it's like, "What, what is?" It's going almost on here? like so, it's erotica, but it's about a what, uh, about his murder. When you're describing sex and it sounds a little over the top, it's probably a little over the top. Well, so, and
1: just to that to that note, his member was large, somewhat aroused, bloodied, and nasty shade of purple. So that just tells you what's going on here and.
0: And that book paints quite the picture. Jerry Davies was bent over, vomiting in another snowbank, which probably I would be too, right? I'm I kind of want to do it right but. now. So now they didn't know who this who this was at first, right? You know, but later when a woman called in a missing persons report for her brother who didn't show for Christmas dinner, the body was eventually identified.
1: Two and two were put together
0: as Harold Burge. So Jerry's arrested, right? Obviously, although Chuck Lulling, the detective, is suspecting Barbara Hoffman the whole time?
1: Well, especially because Jerry showed the body but didn't necessarily... He, he wasn't admitting to the murder. He was just showing the body. So he was feeling guilty. But, of course, if you know where the body is, you probably somehow associated.
0: Right. He said, I mean, that my girlfriend, Barbara Hoffman, said this was in her house and said this is what happened. So the cops are thinking Barbara. And they, they actually... They kind of believe that Jerry is as ignorant about what happened as he's saying it. He Although,
1: is. as in most cases, though, it's usually more believable to anyone involved that a man has done this, not a woman. So that's always a factor.
0: So they immediately gain a search warrant for Barbara's apartment on State Street, 638 State Street, number 306. Again, that's still there. So somebody maybe listening to this is living there right now. Hi. Now she's in Chicago, right? She took off and was live and was staying with her family for Christmas. The police can't find a landlord anywhere, so they take the door off the hinges. And inside it was like a greenhouse. It's like super hot and humid. It's like eighty degrees in there. She had the thermostat. Set to eighty degrees, like a health studio. Yeah, like a health spa, <laughs> a sauna. She's got <laughs> like Jan's health spa, right? So she's got plants all over, right? There's ivy crawling up the walls, there's ferns and spider plants hanging from the ceiling. All Sounds these like my living room. All these plants are under fluorescent tube lights, right? Not weed, but well, maybe some weed. But I would like, think there's that's the like, first thing like I thought. It's like exotic flora, right? You know, I mean, which is weird because I don't consider her a horticulturist. <laughs> So they're, they're looking for the obvious, right? They're, they're looking for fingerprints, blood, bodily fluids, anything forensically that they can find in that apartment to, you know, tell them that, that, was a, that there was a, a murder there. There were no immediate signs of foul-smelling corpse upon entering the apartment, which is telling,
1: but they did see signs of bleach on the bathroom floor, but they couldn't at that point assume
0: that it was meant for blood removal. So was there Luminal? I mean, this was in 1980 so is in nineteen eighty, or nineteen seventy-eight. Was Luminal not not available? I don't one? know. Right, exactly. And they also found a lot of other things that you would think would be in her apartment: dildos, vibrators, <laughs> dozens <laughs> I of. I didn't think you were going to come out oh and see yeah. the words, but they're there. Dozens of explicit photos with her in them, and you know, umpteen other people. Well, she probably
1: likes the scrapbook. You need to keep that stuff sure. for that.
0: You know, books about deviant sexual behavior, books about sexual taboos. Books on poisons, forensic pathology, and autopsies. As we mentioned, she's a smart girl, and she was into
1: biochemistry, so she knew a lot of this stuff.
0: You know, but they couldn't take anything because none of that stuff was under the warrant, right? They're looking for fingerprints and stuff. but and they, they don't even
1: know who she is for sure yet.
0: And really, nobody did because, you know, the interesting thing, what they, they also didn't find in her apartment... Was, was a confession? really any kind of personal effects, no photos other than the explicit ones, but like nothing of her family, right? No, no pictures of her parents, no pictures of her her family, no friends growing up, no yearbooks, no journals, anything like that that you would expect to see in somebody's house. She's an isolated entity
1: with like, she's basically kind of living off the grid or off the map. She's a ghost, right? Right. No proof that she's had a past at all. So there's all these unanswered. It was even
0: hard to research her, to be honest, because of that. There's all these unanswered questions about her. You know, why would you quit school? With all that 12 credits shy and right. turned to this.
1: Right.
0: And she did have a family, which is where she's at now, right? But she, she would only see them during Christmas. She gave them that. The rest of the year, she didn't really see them much. They didn't really come up and visit her. She wouldn't have them there. She didn't visit them. But she gave them that Christmas visit once a year. And
1: that goes to show that they didn't want to have known her on all the different levels of her life either. Right. Even her own family didn't know of all this
0: stuff. So they go to Illinois and they question her there and she tells them nothing. She cusses at them. She basically tells them to fuck off and that she wants a lawyer. But now she knows that Jerry Davies sang to the police. So when another search warrant was procured for her apartment. Which was
1: against their initial agreement. Right. He was supposed
0: to stay quiet.
1: They were both going to shut up. Mum's the word.
0: So another search warrant they get. And they go back to her apartment. And they take some rugs. And they're looking for fibers and things. But they also found a manila envelope tucked away in a closet. with Some bank records. A post office box key. A library card. But not for her. Not for Barbara Hoffman. But for a woman named... Linda Millar. Now, an autopsy on Harry Burge deemed his death was caused by blunt force trauma to the head and facial area. As we said, he was all beat to shit. There was what appeared to be fingernail scratches on his neck, which occurred before death, as did the damage to his genital area. That was anti-mortem, which is before death. Now, there are many other podcasts out there about this case. There's many blogs out there about that case saying that the damage to his genital area was done after death, and in they're insinuating it's some kind of ritualistic, brutal overkill.
1: That sounds ridiculous. It's not I didn't, true. I didn't even know that it's yet. It's
0: not true. Why would that be true? It happened before death. Considering all the details we've mentioned, of course.
1: Right. Yeah, that's kind of ridiculous in my opinion.
0: No, it was also discovered during the autopsy that he had kidney cancer, and he likely didn't know it. But it was advanced to the point where Harry likely would not have lasted another year. So, sad story all around for Harold Burge, who, you know, really did nothing. Burge's right
1: kidney was never diagnosed or treated with cancer. If left untreated, it's figured he would have died within a year, meaning his murder would most likely have been unnecessary.
0: Now, the prosecutor investigating Harry's murder and looking into Barbara Hoffman was the youngest prosecutor ever elected in Dane County. He was 30 years old at the time, and his name, of course, was Jim Doyle, who we all now know as former governor, Jim Doyle. So Doyle received a call from an attorney in Cambridge, Wisconsin, who'd handled a lot of legalities for the Burge family. Harry's parents, Harry himself, in regards to the will and such. And he tells Doyle that that past October, Harry came to see him and wanted everything to be left to a woman named Linda Millar. He thought it was very odd that Harry would do this. He also thought it was odd that Harry was suddenly engaged to the point that he was kind of looking during this meeting if, like, Harry was being coerced or pressured by this Linda Millar to do this because it was so unexpected, but he didn't see anything like that. And Harry even came back a week later after the paperwork was drawn up to sign the papers without her, and he seemed fine. He seemed happy and and, and wasn't seemed to be any problem As far as Harry was concerned. And this lawyer wanted to pass that information along to Doyle. And Doyle was like, all right, well, who the hell is Linda Millar? So at this point, Doyle is convinced that Barbara killed Harold Birch. But he has nothing, right? Other than somebody saying that he helped her bury him, he had nothing. She's not cooperating. Nobody saw him in her apartment. There's no physical evidence he was there. And if it was planned, why do it on a third floor apartment, right? Right. So he didn't have anything on her. And now who, who who is this Linda Millar person that Harold is putting all of his stuff in her name. And du- and again during the investigation they don't find a lot of people that really know Barbara. She didn't have close friends. She had acquaintances at the at the massage parlors obviously. She girls that she knew. But who knew of her? Right, she but didn't not anything about her. She didn't really have and for this person to be the queen of what she does, right? And to be so smart while she was in college. There was no close friends.
1: Which is maybe a testament to her intelligence that she did keep everyone at arm's length. Yeah.
0: All she really had was acquaintances at the, at the massage parlor and, and returning customers obviously knew her. You know, even They knew of her. Nobody knew her. Right. Technically. Right. They well they were they spent time, <laughs> Right. They spent time with her, right? But
1: it was always about her giving them the attention they wanted. No one ever got to know anything about her past and who she was and how she did
0: things. And even in her own apartment after she quote unquote left the business, other residents in her own building reported guys in and out of there constantly. They'd even be sleeping in the hallway waiting for her to come home. So even though she left Jans, she didn't leave the business. She just ran it independently out of her own house. And then almost in passing, Doyle asked Jerry, Jerry Davies, if he knew the name Linda Millar. Does the name Linda Millar mean anything to you? And Jerry said, oh yeah, that's her alias, but she never uses it for anything, right? Quote, oh, that's Barbara. Barbara is Linda Millar, unquote. Literally came out and said it. And Jerry never thought twice about her having an alias. You know, She gave, again, the same scoop that She wanted to move on from her masseuse life. So she was going to start using this other name. And Jerry thought nothing of it. So now they know Linda and Barbara are the same person. And Harold Burge was knocked off, most likely due to an insurance scheme. And then the other shoe dropped. Doyle received a call from Pat O'Donohue, who was an independent insurance agent. He called and he said that he'd been following the Harold Burge case, and he knew Barbara Hoffman was a suspect, and he had some information that he thought might be helpful. But there was some negotiating that had to be done in this because this guy, even though, he, even though he had some info on Barbara Hoffman, he might be in a little trouble too. Right? Not because of the murder, but for other things that he wanted to keep keep quiet, keep a little bit under the table. Because if he's going to give this information, he needs to know that he's not going to get in trouble himself. And they never really gave him that that assurance. But the guy wound up spilling the information anyways because they forced him to. So O'Donohue tells Doyle that in November of the year prior, so November 1976, Barbara Hoffman and her fiance Jerry Davies come to him requesting a three million dollar life insurance policy for Jerry. Jerry Davies makes $10,000 a year. He doesn't make any money. There's no way he can afford a $3 million insurance policy. But but they give this insurance agent a story and they say, "But I am actually minority owner of four massage parlors in Madison and the money I make from them is all paid under the table in cash, so there's no tax record of it. But I have a whole shit ton of money coming in under the table." in cash that I could afford this $3 million policy with. So they they have to lie to this insurance agent about how much money he makes in order to get that policy. And this is what the guy was doing when he said, I might be in trouble too. Because he he knew that Jerry could not prove that he made the amount of money to get a $3 million policy. Get three million, right? They wanted such a large amount of money, not because he was worth the amount of money that could justify a $3 million life insurance policy, but because they wanted that money that you can use to defer your taxes and build capital. So, so ba- And this gets really complicated, and we're not going to go into a lot of it's this. It's not real interesting. A either. lot of this stuff, right. So basically what, what they were doing is if you have a permanent life insurance policy, it comes with a cash component value to it. It comes with a cash value, and you can use that cash value to kind of create a savings account for yourself. So if you if you pay a hundred dollars a month in premiums, you can use like say sixty five dollars of that a month and set aside as a savings every month. And obviously the larger the account, the more cash value it has and you can withdraw from that. So kind of taking a loan against itself, tax free. So it's a scheme that they're running. It's a legal it's a legal scheme, but in order to do any of this, in order to to take out a loan against Life insurance policy, you have to have the policy in place. In order to get the policy in place, they had to lie about the money that Jerry made. So it's a legit scheme, and it's legal, but what's not legit is this nonsense that he had all this cash under the table. He didn't have any ownership in any massage parlor anywhere. That was pure fabrication. But she was smart enough to come up with a lie. Exactly. And it was clear to O'Donohue that when Jerry was filling out the forms Jerry had no clue what he was doing. Right. Jerry had no clue, and he was deferring to Barbara for all of this. Barbara is telling him what to do. So this, it was clear to O'Donohue that this was a Who scheme... Was in charge of this. ...concocted by Barbara.
1: And he, they didn't get the $3 million. Eventually, they got the policy for right. 750000 right. under questionable circumstances, as mentioned. In fact, to the point where the insurance agent actually fled to Native Mexico to escape the investigation at some point. Right, so...
0: And they wanted nothing to do with it once it was done. So look, there's a lot of side hustles to this story that we're not going to talk about and and that's one of them is is the guy. So they didn't get the $3 million policy that Mickey said because they couldn't they couldn't prove that he made any money. So they tried to get a $1 million dollar policy. Nobody took that on. So finally they got a they got a company in Indiana somewhere or something to give them a $750,000 policy, which is still a lot of money, right? right? It's not $3 million, but it's still a lot of money, especially in 1976. A
1: lot more than she was getting from Burge Right. In any story that came up for him.
0: Now, this O'Donohue guy was on hook for that. He did this because he wanted the commission, right? You're a, He's an you're insurance an, agent. A, yes, you get commission. So he That's lied how you make to, your money. And now, their premiums on this insurance policy were over $13,000 a year. They had to make two payments a year for $6,600. Where's that money coming from? Right. All right, so, so as Mickey said, a member, a member of this tax company who actually stole their premium checks, took off to Mexico. So he wanted nothing to do with any of this stuff. When they, when they took the policy out, the policy, the beneficiary of the policy was Jerry Davis' estate. Two months later, two months after they took this policy out, Jerry Davies had the beneficiary of the policy, changed from his estate to Barbara Hoffman. So now Doyle knows that not only was Burge killed for insurance money, Jerry Davies is likely next. So they arrest Barbara. She's arraigned on first-degree murder charges, and she posts bail and is out in a few days. So on January eighteenth,
1: 1978, Barbara Hoffman was arrested and charged with first-degree murder of her once boyfriend, Harold Burge. After about three months after her arrest, she was released on $15,000 bail paid by her parents, which is somewhat significant in my opinion.
0: So you think if she makes all this money, right? She she made all this money as a masseuse. All these guys are paying for her. She's the queen of this stuff. Where is all not money going?
1: Right. How how come that bail didn't come out of her own account?
0: And she retains Don Eisenberg as her lawyer. Don Eisenberg... If you listen to the Lori Benbenic case, Don Eisenberg was also Lori Benbenic's lawyer a year later. So this guy's been around, you know, picking up his, his checks too. Now they're afraid that Barbara's looking to knock off Jerry and they offer him protection. And Jerry's like protection from who? (laughs) He doesn't get it. Again, he's in love. Love is blind. He doesn't understand the fact that this quote unquote fiance of his is actually looking to off him for a $750,000 life insurance policy, which he just had put in her name. So they put, they put Jerry, ba- Jerry Davies under 24-hour surveillance without his knowledge because he didn't want it. He's like, this, my fiancé's not going to kill me, right? He's not understanding this. But after only two weeks, it was lifted against Chuck Lulling's wishes. He was pissed about this.
1: Because Davies was advised to steer clear of Hoffman,
0: but as we've alluded to, he kept up the romance. So again, the, the, the police are very nervous that Jerry Davies is going to be next and get knocked off by Barbara, and Jerry Davies does not believe it at all, right? Now, the next premium payment on that $750,000 life insurance policy is coming due now, right? It's due in January, and it's $6,600, which Barbara had to pay, or the policy would lapse, or Jerry needs to die. Now, Eisenberg told her to let that lapse because it looked terrible. She's she's being charged with murder right now based on an insurance scheme with Harold Burge. So her having an insurance policy off of somebody else that she's not married to right now for $750,000 looks terrible. She's starting to look like a demon. Yeah, a little bit. Smart, but demonistic. Now, she didn't want to. Obviously let that lapse because she went through a lot of work to get this done, but she reluctantly did. Jerry, however, had $20,000 more in three more policies that she didn't really know about until later that he eventually had changed and made her as the beneficiary as well. So again, he's blind. He's just not understanding what's going on here. So the policy lapsed. The 30-day grace period was over and the policy was now inactive and doyle was now no longer worried about jerry's well-being. Now there's no reason to kill him anymore, right? She can't get any money from it. So they're a little they're resting a little easier right now about jerry because they need his testimony, right? Yeah, they need That's the main factor in their case. Right, they don't have a lot without what he says. And he's kind of fidgety and nervous and
1: not wanting to go in against his girlfriend at this point, so They're even reluctant about him,
0: and he's all they've got. They're worried that he's going to recant what he's already told them. Uh So they don't want him dead, and they don't want him to recant what he said. But on March 26th, a reporter in Madison, among some others, received a letter as she had been assigned to the Barbara Hoffman trial. She's a crime reporter in Madison. She was the reporter that was assigned to this trial, which was the most publicized murder trial ever in Wisconsin up to this point, 1978. We were
1: young children, but I don't remember.
0: Now, it had no return address on it, and when she opened it, the letter... Davy
1: sent an identically worded letters to Hoffman's attorney
0: and three Madison newspapers. It's a handwritten letter, and it reads the following. It says, quote, I want to write these letters because I want to set the record straight. I was scared. I was jealous. Barb is innocent, and I wrecked her life. All those stories I told about Barb are false. She never had anything to do with the body at all she never did i went crazy i was scared the police scared me i was crazy and i didn't know what i was saying then i had to keep telling the same story or they would charge me with a crime now they did it to barb instead and i don't know what to do anymore except to tell the truth i'm not crazy anymore i'm not scared i want to tell the truth i'm not afraid to go to jail Barb never had anything to do with the body at all. I swear it. And they can do what they want with me. Sincerely, Gerald Thomas.
1: And this Davis. guy is not even getting sex anymore, and he's that devoted in love, in love with this woman who's trying to get him killed.
0: So he just recanted everything he told them, and he kind of implicates himself, right? Saying right. she Who has else is it if it's do, not right? him,
1: right? So he's desperate to protect his loved one. The problem is he never mentioned what actually happened. (laughs) He never mentions the true story. He just recants everything so that she can be off the hook because he's feeling guilty about throwing his love under the bus.
0: Now the next day, on March 27th, a neighbor who lived above Jerry Davies' apartment at 2305 South Park Street, apartment 7, somebody's in there right now, complained about the loud nature of Jerry's bathroom fan that he apparently left on, and it was on for quite some time. So maintenance was called, and they go to the door, and after getting no answer, they enter the apartment, and they're thinking they're just going to go into the bathroom and turn off the switch. And instead, they find Jerry Davies' body sitting in his bathtub in about six inches of water. So Steve Urso, who actually was Chuck Lulling's nephew, was the first officer on the scene. So he knew who this person was, being Chuck Lolling's nephew, and he knew the significance of this. And in, in uh, Harder's book, it says, "Quote: Rather than gruesome, Ursel thought the setting oddly surreal. The fan gurgled stridently. The bathroom appeared clean, peaceful, with Davies in a state of contented repose. Rigor mortis had set in, and Davies' skin looked shiny in the coal tub, like a piece of wax fruit on platter. Discoloration blotted the appendages, and what was underwater was tinted white. A melancholy smile seemed pressed on the livid lips. A trace of spittle had hardened at the corner of the mouth. A purplish tint rimmed around the nostrils. His guileless brown eyes were open. Death had given Jerry Davies what life had refused. An appearance of serenity poetic as gruesome and morbid as it is it's kind of
1: beautiful how he worded that they did find an empty valium bottle next to him in the tub next to the tub itself as a result they initially speculated suicide considering the letters but throughout this whole time he they weren't completely sure that davies wasn't somehow part of it or outright trying to frame hoffman for his actions because possibly he killed burge out of jealousy after finding out hoffman was engaged to him also
0: so and now he sent those letters right before this right so now were those letters A suicide note? Right. Well, he's not off the hook for as far as murder, but are they just
1: saying he killed himself because he couldn't handle it anymore? All the pressure that he put on himself. So this is all being speculated, and they're trying to figure out the whole story.
0: throws a whole other wrench into it. Exactly. Now, the autopsy was— Days
1: after he writes this letter.
0: The autopsy was pretty clean. The cause of death appeared to be asphyxiation because his lungs were full of water. So the most logical answer was accidental drowning— but it didn't really, it didn't really make sense. Like he's sitting up in his bathtub and there were six inches of water in there and like how he didn't move after he drowned. Right. So they weren't really sure what was going on. And then they thought maybe he injected himself with something, right. Maybe an accidental overdose or a suicide, but they found no substances in his body or no puncture wound. They did find the Valium bottle, but it wasn't nearly enough in his body to cause any kind of reaction like this. So they don't know what's going on. There was no sign that Barbara had been there. Some of the things were there, but they would have been anyways, right? They were, they were quote unquote dating, you know, but there were no fingerprints around. There was no blood. There was no sign of a struggle, nothing like that. Now Lulling, however, did not believe this. He didn't believe the notion now that as Mickey said, there was thought now that he committed suicide because maybe he was the one that actually took out Harold Burge. Lulling did not believe this. He believed Barbara murdered him, and she was just able to clean it up well. And you know, with with, because if you think about it from her perspective, she just eliminated the the main witness against her, and now she created a whole lot of doubt in who actually killed Harry Burge by eliminating him. So over a span of several weeks, toxicology tests were done on Davy's blood and all of his organs, urine, stomach contents, everything. He did eat a meal, uh, you know, a short while before dying, but nothing really of substance was initially found then either. And the toxicologist at the state crime lab, Kenneth Kempert, was combing through everything, he's trying to find anything, and he's getting pressure from Lulling too, because Lulling thinks, you know, that he was murdered, so there's got to be something there, and he just can't find anything. Well, and they all
1: have their theories, and they all want to find the proof to
0: prove what they're theorizing right. about. And although he wasn't finding anything in Jerry Davis' system, he did kind of notice a slight smell while he's doing these tests, not the initial autopsy. And he couldn't really place it. He knew he'd smelt it before. It was a familiar smell, but he didn't really know what it was. It wasn't gas. It wasn't, it wasn't indigestion. And after thinking on it a bit, he realized the smell was similar to that of burnt almonds. And now, now he knew, Kempfert knew that that meant something again. But, you know, in all his training, he knew that the smell of burnt almonds means something. He didn't know what it was. So he combs. He couldn't remember what he couldn't it was. Couldn't remember, right? So he combs a, all every book and every piece of literature that he can find in his training, you know, and then he finds it. The smell of burnt almonds is the telltale sign of cyanide poisoning.
1: Huh. Does that make sense, considering her background and knowledge of biochemistry?
0: Now, cyanide doesn't just show up in tests, right? You have to specifically test for it. And the next day they ran the test. Jerry Davies had been killed by ingestion of cyanide. Nearly twice the lethal dose was found in his system. Enough to kill two men. So then, of course, they do the next logical thing, and they test Harold Burge's blood. 37 times.
1: 37 times illegal dosage in his system. Turns out that they thought it was head trauma that killed him, as originally believed. Turns out it was... Cyanide poisoning 37 times a dosage,
0: which does beg many questions. Now, they did find in Jerry Davies' checkbook checks written out to LABS, L A A B S, which is a company and it's a chemical supply company, which they were able to verify with the company that it was indeed cyanide that was purchased by both Jerry Davies and an, un- an unidentified female over the phone. And it was shipped in separate shipments to both Jerry's address. And Barbara Hoffman's address. So now she's she's eventually charged with both murders of Harold Burge and Jerry Davies. Now, they're tried at the same time, which I'm not, you know, we talked about this in the Tom Monfiles cases. This is this is a bad thing as far as I'm concerned. Barbara Hoffman's attorney Eisenberg actually fought to have two separate trials but to no avail. There was there was quite a bit so the trial begins. There's quite a bit of circumstantial evidence pointing to her but there were also witnesses testifying that barbara spilled her plans beforehand
1: so at that point police had started looking into the area kingpin sam ciro and his associate william grover garrett who was the part owner and manager of jan's health studio previously at a party now this is one of those fun parties that everybody wants to get right, to right you're right this is one night at this party where a lot of these people are involved, all these masseuses and the owners of this health club. Hoffman let slip a secret of her plans to marry any man so she could find. And she knew which kind's the target, obviously. She was going to take out a life insurance policy on him, honeymoon with him in Mexico, and poison and then cremate him. Wanting more details of the plan, William Garrett asked her to speak further, and she did. This was the same man, by the way, who forced her to stop her co-signing scheme earlier. The plan was to marry Davies in the spring of 1977. They both got passports and enjoy a honeymoon in Mexico. The wedding was put off, of course, most likely due to the slipping up of her secret and telling too much.
0: Much of this was able to be corroborated. So they know that she and Davies set a marriage date that she would later postpone. They know that they both got passports to go to Mexico. They applied for a license. So everything was lining up. Her her plan was put in place, and she spills her beans drunk on wine and quaaludes at an orgy. <laughs> she just tells somebody that she's got a guy, a very shy kind of guy that comes in, a very inexperienced man, that... She can thinks that she can make this work on. And again,
1: these are all people doing shady things at a shady place, whether it's a health studio or not. So she thinks she can trust these people. She's smart enough, even if she's looped up on quaaludes and wine, she's smart enough to, to know who she can and cannot tell. This is the owner of the place. He's looking, he, he's allowing things to happen all the time. She assumes she can trust him. Well, turns out, He'd already stopped her once for doing these side gigs as she was trying to open her own parlor. She didn't realize that this wasn't a guy you could trust as far as that, and it would come back to haunt her, as I mentioned.
0: Now, these these guys have their own trouble. They're in trouble with the cops all the time. They're running drugs. Exactly. Right? One of them tried to buy 70, $72,000 worth of cocaine, I think, from an undercover officer. Which
1: is why she thinks there's nothing I can do that can right. uh, you know outshine these guys. But
0: they all have raps that they got to beat, right? So the way they do that is by providing the cops with information about an open murder investigation, which just nailed her. I get out of
1: my stuff if I tell you stuff about somebody else.
0: So now it got out to them, to to Sam Serro and Ken Curtis, who was her friend that heard this at the party. And they actually went to her and said, you know what? <laughs> you just You just ran your mouth at the party you were at the other night, and now people know about this. So it might be a good idea to not do it. So now she knows that her plan has been found out. Not because of any, you know, slick investigative work by anybody, but because she had diarrhea of the mouth and told people her plan. So now she had to change things up. And she was going to poison Davies with botulism. She was growing botulism in her apartment, Miss Biochemistry Major.
1: She's got knowledge.
0: Right, so now people know her plan. The botulism thing went out the window, and she turned to cyanide and also it it came to light that one of her regular customers was an insurance salesman, and she had an arrangement with him where she was pick where she would she would pick his brain about how to game the system in insurance for tricks so this is how she gained all the knowledge about insurance and using your insurance for savings accounts and being able to draw loans off your life insurance she gained all this from john's from when she was a masseuse right and as mickey said she would also get a number of regulars she would allow them to get close to her she would ask them to co sign loans for her and if they wouldn't she would then blow their cover by telling their wives what they're doing every night after So they were going to give her the work. money.
1: Yeah, As we mentioned, they, they, they weren't going to go come forward because they were ch- hiding their own stuff.
0: So she was a con artist yes. right? Who, who manipulated two lonely men to take out life insurance policies on her, and then she killed them with cyanide, spiking food that she made with the poison. This is the case against her. Now, during the trial, the prosecution called over 70 witnesses and had 200 exhibits.
1: And at this time, well, a little bit prior, CSI units actually checked behind the dumpster where she originally hid the body
0: before Davies even got involved, and they were actually able to find preserved blood and hair. So now they have forensic evidence against her as well. Now, the defense called about a dozen witnesses, as opposed to the over 70 for the prosecution, 200 exhibits for the prosecution. The defense calls about a dozen witnesses, two of whom were Barbara's parents, Both saying that they spent both nights, the night that Harry Burge was killed and the night that Jerry Davies was killed, at her apartment in Madison. And this was largely thought to be contrived for an alibi and not believable. And they also know that on one of the days, she called their house from her phone, made a long-distance call after midnight, so they know that they weren't there. So her parents lied for her on the stand. And Doyle actually could have prosecuted them as well for perjury, but obviously he decided he's not going to do that because they've, they didn't have anything to do with any of this stuff. You know, they were just trying to save their daughter. and Not a good decision on their part, but it and is what it is. As a bit of an interesting
1: side note, uh, incidentally, Cero and Garrett, as mentioned, the kingpin and the owner of Jen's Elspa had previously engaged services of Hoffman's lawyer, Donald Eisenberg. Upon suggestion that he might be disbarred over this conflict of interest, Eisenberg's response, wanting to defend his client, Barbara Hoffman, quote, fuck the bar, unquote. He eventually would be disbarred over this by sticking to his client, but he'd be
0: reinstated in 2000. I think he lost it again, didn't he? Didn't he lose his license again? Probably later on. Yeah, I didn't Uh, know. He's he's a blowhard. Right. He's a a media guy. Yeah, he's one of these slick lawyers that... You know, they're wearing the shiny suits, and Better they talk Saul. loud. And, Better you know, call
1: Saul, yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: So now it goes to the jury. Again, she's tried for both murders at the same time. It goes to the jury, and after 14 hours, the jury comes back with their verdict. On the charge of the murder of Jerry Davies, not guilty. On June
1: 28, 1980, this was.
0: On the charge of the murder of Harold Burge, Guilty.
1: Convicted of first-degree murder. On July 2nd, 1980, she was sentenced to life in prison at Techita Women's Correctional Institution in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. And as far as I know, she's still alive and there today.
0: She's still there. She's 72 years old or so. She's still not, claiming
1: her innocence, never admitting she guilt. She never talks about it. Right. She never, she she, she never admitted guilt, but she, yeah, she, she's kind of got her tongue tied, or, and she doesn't.
0: It's, yeah, it's not even really that she still claims her innocence. She's, she doesn't, she doesn't she's, claim anything. She's never given an interview. She's never talked to anybody. She's isolated. She doesn't associate with the other prisoners at Techita also There's, where Larry, Lori Bembenek went and always claimed her innocence and then wound up escaping. So, you, you know, and whereas Barbara Hoffman has ended all of her appeals. She has no intention of ever getting out of prison. She never... She doesn't want to. She shows no desire to leave that place.
1: And she, as Scott mentioned, she's denied interview request after interview request. There was one quote, quote, I did not commit the crime of which I have been accused and for which I have been convicted, unquote. That's as much as she's ever said. She denies requests constantly. She also declined to seek parole, as Scott mentioned, even through eligibility since 1991, turned 71 this year and probably institutionalized, said to be naturally introverted. Maybe
0: she feels more secure now overall. No, she got that security that kind of was always looking for by right. stealing money from everybody else. Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. The prosecutors, uh, and I'd, I'd be curious to know if Jim Doyle still believes this, but although they prosecuted Barbara as they did, right, for both Harold Burge and Jerry Davies' murder, Privately, Jim Doyle didn't believe she really meant to kill Harold Burge. And they were they were, they were a very different murder, right? I mean, they they were both done by cyanide, but the scenarios were very different. Burge was beat to shit, mm-hmm. violently, right? His head his head was all bloody and and, and beat. His groin was all demolished. And, and
1: it turns out she she wouldn't have needed to be tomatoes. murdered because cancer would have done it. Right, but the shiny tomatoes weren't necessary. Right.
0: But Davies wasn't, right? He was just lying serenely in his bathtub. So why kill— After admitting that she didn't do it in a
1: letter sent to the media and to the local. Right.
0: So why killed Harold Burge in a, in a third-story apartment where you know it's going to be hard to get him out? Kill him somewhere else.
1: Eisenberg remained forever. Her her lawyer, Eisenberg remained forever convinced that Hoffman would have beaten the charges if there had been separate trials. Quote: It was an amazing case. As her attorney, I know what the full story is, but I can't tell anyone because of attorney-client privilege. What can you do? It was a hell of a trial. Unquote.
0: And also, Jerry Davies had twice the amount of lethal dosage in his in his system, where Harold Burge had thirty-seven. 37.
1: Which you know? begs the question: If she's so knowledgeable about this, about biochemistry in general, why would she cause such red flags?
0: Well, and that's that's what they're that's what Doyle was thinking privately. He's you know he believed that Davies was the goal. That's, that seven hundred fifty thousand dollars was the goal, right? And Enough ev- of
1: what she wanted,
0: right? And everything was ready: the wedding, the passports, the botulism. It was all there, and then she got stupid drunk, right, and blew her cover, and she had to change it up, and now cyanide became the method, and not botulism. And she was too smart to use that much. But but Or that's the
1: speculation about if she's innocent or not.
0: But they think Harold Burge interfered and that he showed up at her place that night. So
1: he was supposedly last seen leaving the company, Uniroyal Tire Factory where he worked, Christmas party, and then immediately headed over to Hoffman's
0: apartment. So he shows up at her apartment and she's not expecting him. You know, but he knows that she's that she's leaving him, so he wants to win her back. Right. Now cyanide in crystal form looks exactly like sugar. In, indistinguishable from sugar. So they believe what, what Doyle privately believes now thirty seven times the lethal dose of cyanide is is the size of a teaspoon. Right. Imagine that. I mean just getting a on bit of a little bit of a little bit
1: of a little
0: bit of a little to of a little of a little bit of a little her of You know he thinks that she's leaving during the conversation he gets a cup of coffee she makes him a cup of coffee he makes himself a cup of coffee whatever it is maybe she turns his back maybe she goes into the bathroom he goes to the cupboard expecting to put sugar in his coffee and he puts 37 times the lethal dose of cyanide in his own coffee so
1: possibly he even killed himself she had the materials there with intentions right but didn't necessarily do it.
0: Well, and then they further go on and say that he... So he drinks the coffee, his throat emerg- immediately starts to burn clearly. Now he starts panicking. I gave you everything. You're leaving me. I put everything in your name, right? Now he comes at her. She's trying to defend herself, which would lead to be the scratch on his neck. She kicks him in the balls a few times, leading to the shiny tomatoes we talked shiny about. Tomatoes. And then she grabs a, a, a frying pan and clocks him over the head five times. Because so now yes,
1: she's got to end it because she's panicked and doesn't know what else to do. So it might have just been a, a crime of incident at the time, not not premeditated, right?
0: So and so this is what and if I find this this very interesting that they didn't prosecute it that way. You know, they prosecuted it as being two cold, cold-hearted, calculated murders. But privately, they believe that Harold Burge went over there, interviewed in her plan. Shit hit the fan, and she wound up having to kill him in that scenario. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I believe that. I don't think I believe that. You know, I, I believe, I do believe that that Davies was was the goal. But so, why did she kill Jerry Davies after the, his policy ran out? And
1: I, just an interesting note. This this was the first U trial in U.S. history to be fully televised, and yet another nationwide first to occur in Wisconsin. And this case actually ended up helping expose the thriving underground sex industry in, in Madison in the 1970s. So having said all that, it it does seem like she had a plan to get rich, to do the things she wanted to do. But I'm not sure, even though she spoke of murder, that that was always her intention. But as you said, things just worked out that way. Does that make her, like, maybe too intelligent? Maybe she got bored? Why didn't she use these... These tools and and the training she had, she had an education ahead of her. She had biochemistry ahead of her. That's that's money right there. But for some reason, she chose to go down a different path once she found the massage parlor. Did she? Was she bored? Was Was she just looking for some excitement, or was she too smart for her own good? Maybe, or maybe she's just a psychopath. And at some point, those colors just bleed out, whether they want, whether the person wants them to or not. In some cases, so it's just it's hard to tell. Why a person ends up doing the things that she's been accused of, whether she actually did them or not?
0: I think I don't. I don't think I would believe Doyle's surmise here that she didn't kill. She didn't intentionally kill Harold Burge. I believe she did. She still went through the insurance schemes with him, right? Right. And I believe she wasn't
1: above it at all. But I'm not sure it was always part of her plan.
0: Well, she, so she she or she had to change her plans. She gets the she gets the insurance policy with Davies. Which is thirteen thousand dollars a year? Right. She has no money. Right. She's got that next insurance premium coming up, and I believe she killed Burge to get his life insurance policy to pay for the premiums for Davies policy for the better policy. Right. That is that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I don't believe in the the notion that that Doyle is said to have thought that he went over there and it just, shit just hit the fan and, and she wound up killing him. But it's
1: all it's, part of the speculation, and yeah. there's there's no way we're ever going to know for sure. But again, if she's so smart and she's got knowledge of biochemistry and all that, like you said, if it happened the way it happened, like where he put his, in his own coffee, but if she actually ended up doing the deed as far as the, the cyanide, why did she use so much on either one of them? Twice as much as she needed on Davies, 37 times the amount she needed on Burge, so that
0: that's where some of the questions come to life. You know, when you think of 30 37 times again is a, is a teaspoon. So, right. like, she put it in as chili or something. She put it in right, but why use food?
1: that much? Because it's going to cause red flags, and it's going to bring it back to her because of her knowledge and her experience. You know, if it, why not be more subtle about it? If you're going to, you know, make it seem like it just happened.
0: Well, why did she kill him in her, in her apartment?
1: Right, and that I mean, I believe she did it, but it's it's just hard to know and. Again, like my my first point was why? I mean, she she's a smart woman. She had a future ahead of her. Why did she choose to go this route anyway? It's not like she was too far gone that she just had no choice and was desperate. What caused her to be this way? Is she too smart for her own good? Was she bored?
0: Or was she just a psychopath and this was her destiny? What happened to her in college? You know, something she's a straight A student. Right, there's something maybe we don't know about. Something I'm um, something clicked. Or even younger. There. Then. Maybe something happened to her in her childhood that made it's her just another thing she doesn't dark, talk about, right? Doesn't know anything talk about her any. own
1: family, didn't know anything about her. So, these and she's still to this day still alive from as far as we know, doesn't talk. So, there's no way to ever know what caused her to go down these, these roads where she was just an up and coming, you know, she had the whole world ahead of her and she chose to go in this direction. And these are choices, whether we want to understand that about ourselves or not. Once we're adults and we're responsible for our own actions, at that point, it's our choices that we make. So whether she claims innocence or not, these are choices she made that put her in these predicaments. And this is the just cause.
0: Amen, brother.